You're listening to the Weekly Wrap-Up on Sprott Money News. Happy Friday from Sprott Money News at SprottMoney.com. It is Friday, January 22nd, 2021. Time for your Weekly Wrap-Up. Uh, Eric remains unavailable, but joining us this week is his old friend Rick Rule. Rick, of course, of Sprott Inc., and uh, one of the most respected and trusted names in the precious metal sector. Always good to hear from Rick. Rick, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, a pleasure and an honor to sit in for Eric on his channel. Thanks. Thank you, Craig, for giving me the opportunity. Hey, it is our pleasure. And again, I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. If you enjoy listening to these weekly wrap-up Ask the Expert podcasts, be sure to like, maybe subscribe, and share on the channel that you're listening to. We're excited to have uh, a new feature coming from Sprott Money. Uh, I think beginning in February, we're going to have a monthly podcast session with Chris Vermeulen. Chris and I will sit down once a month and look at the charts that he's analyzing and have him explain what it is he'll be watching uh, in the month ahead. So look for that sometime. We'll probably do that in about two weeks. We'll do it every month going forward. Oh, and one more thing. Ask the Expert returns this month. I'll be recording next week with Luke Groman. Many of you familiar with Luke? Uh, very uh, wise, experienced, smart guy. So if you have any questions for Luke, send them in. Uh, there's our chance to answer your questions. The email address is the word submissions, with an S, submissions, at SprottMoney.com. We'll try to get to many of, as many of your questions as we can. But for now, hey, I don't want to waste any more time. I got Rick Rule on the line for crying out loud. Rick, uh, it's been an interesting start to the year. We came out of the box charging uh, the first couple of trading days of the year looked like we were breaking out of some technical formations, and we've been kind of sideways and down ever since. Uh, what are your thoughts as the year begins, and uh, any idea of where, where we might be headed? Well, this is sort of a replay from our last discussion. You'll recall we were coming off an extraordinarily hot market, uh, and the market began to collapse a little bit, probably of its own weight. Uh, and this is very, very common. Uh, in resource bull markets. Um, so my first comment would be, as it was then, real natural resource bull markets, precious metals bull markets, are of substantial duration. The first one in my career went 11 years, 1970 to 1981. The second one went 11 years, depending on how you measure it, 2000 to 2011. So when people ask me, has the market run its course, Given that this market has been underway for two and a half or three years, I would say that if past is prologue, the answer is no. Dimension is important to understand, too. Um, the 2000 to 2011 market saw the gold price go from $253 an ounce, if my memory serves me well, to almost $1,900 an ounce. So when people say to me gold is cleared from 1100 to $1,850, uh, is the game done? Uh, my suspicion is not likely. On the other hand, uh, two notes of caution that one must pay attention to, maybe three. The first is that uh, within a, a secular bull market, which I believe we're in now, uh, you can have uh, unbelievably severe cyclical declines. Uh, that is to say that the popular indexes can shed 20% or 25%. In fact, if you go back to the 1970s bull market, between 1970 and 1975, the gold price advanced from $35 an ounce to $200 an ounce, a six-fold move. 
But in 1975, when the U.S. Fed allowed interest rates to go up and the dollar strengthened, the gold price fell from 200 to 100 before the Fed lost its, its nerve. People who were shaken out in that 50% cyclical decline missed out in a move, a subsequent move on the gold price from 100 to 850. The lesson here is that we are, I think, in a cyclical bull market, and both the metal and the stocks over time will go much higher. But you have to have the psychological um, strength and the financial strength to stay the trade. It's very important that you have the courage to stay the trade. If you don't, just get out of the way. The second lesson I think that we need to learn is that in a red-hot bull market, uh, everything rises, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, I personally believe that out of, say, 2,000 junior mining listings worldwide, only 300 are viable, which is to say the universe of truly uh, speculation-worthy companies among the juniors is probably 15% of the total population. So irrespective of your belief with regards to where gold is headed or where silver is headed, unless you are really adept at trading a narrative, remember that stock selection is absolutely key. Uh, do not own too many names. Do not own names that you aren't familiar with. That's the most lethal mistake you can make. Other than that, sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. The set of policy circumstances that face us in your country and mine, uh, quantitative easing, debt and deficits, negative interest rates, are all tailor-made for gold in the long term. Yeah. But Rick, you can explain this better than I. And so as you were speaking, I thought, I'm going to ask Rick to explain this again. You know, the, the key correlation, I guess the most dominant correlation for the gold price over time has been negative real interest rates. And I've heard you explain before why that's the case in terms of making the 10-year treasury note, the foundational investment around the planet, a guaranteed loser. Can you take a second and explain to everybody why that is? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not a, so, I'm not a social psychologist uh, or a behavioral finance guy. Uh, but my observation has been that the most important determinant of the gold price has been uh, real or negative real interest rates in fiat currencies. Because the thing that moves people from outside gold into gold is concern about the purchasing power of their savings. Uh, a negative real interest rate, uh, understand, is not a natural phenomenon. The idea that savers would pay borrowers to take their money from them, accept the risk and pay for that privilege is stupid. Uh, it's a circumstance that's contrived uh, and uh, contrived circumstances, which is to say uh, a government declaring war on savers on behalf of spenders with negative real interest rates is the primary circumstance that drives people into gold. If you look as an example right now at the U.S. 10-year treasury, uh, it is hovering, it's up to sort of 1% interest in a currency that the Congressional Budget Office suggests is depreciating at 1.6% a year. In other words, if you give the U.S. government your money, they promise to reduce your wealth by six-tenths of 1% cumulative and compounded over 10 years. Not a very good deal. Now, let's take it away from a personal level to an institutional level. Uh, My partner, John Hathaway, who uh, runs our 40s Act mutual fund in the United States, 
told me that uh, institutional investors worldwide manage approximately a hundred trillion dollars and their mantra has always been 60% debt, 40% equity. I'm sorry, the other way around. 60% equity, 40% debt. The idea being in periods of time when there was economic weakness uh, and the equities portfolio declines, that interest rates would decline and hence the capitalized yield, the principal in their bonds would increase. Uh, bonds being, if you will, a hedge on their equity holdings. But you can't afford the hedge with a negative real yield. If 40% of your portfolio uh, as a long-term manager is guaranteed to lose you 60 basis points a year, and you know that if the interest rate rises, that the principal value of the bonds is going to decline as well, you can't afford to hold bonds. So worldwide, we have a circumstance where institutional managers hold about $40 trillion worth of debt and they have to begin to diversify out of that. I'm not saying that $40 trillion is gonna come into gold. I'm saying that a little bit of that $40 trillion is gonna come into gold because it needs to find an alternative asset class. That's the second reason why negative real interest rates are such an important determinant of the gold price and the price of gold equities. And Rick, when you think about that, um, the amount of cash that could potentially flow into gold mm. in all its forms, you know, whether it's futures contracts, unallocated accounts, ETFs, mining shares, um, that's a lot of cash coming into what is a very tiny market, relatively speaking. Um, I've always called that the rule rule. And this relates back to what you'd said earlier about what happened the last time uh, real interest rates fell this far back in the 1970s. And what happened to the gold price and some of the mining shares. You remember that well. Um, I guess my final question, which is a long intro to it, I might add. <laughs> Maybe you can explain again further how that, how that all kind of comes together for us in the future. Well, I'd like to take credit for that, but it was actually J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, to be honest with you, Ooh. who did the study. Uh, and what the study showed, you, know, you take the good parts of a company and you don't take the bad parts. You know, simple as that. Uh, what the study showed <clears throat> was that the market share of precious metals and precious metals related assets in the United States, which is the largest savings and investment market in the world, was approximately one half of 1%, which is to say that gold, uh, precious metals and precious metals equities uh, comprise one half of 1% of savings and investment assets in the United States market. In 1981 or 1982, the peak of the prior bull market in gold it is estimated that the same market share number was 7%, which is to say 14 times higher. What's more important is that the three decade mean market share of precious metals and precious metals related assets over the past three decades has been between one and a half and 2%. So gold doesn't have to regain its former popularity. All it has to do is revert to mean for demand for precious metals related assets uh, to triple in the most important savings and investment uh, market in the world. That's right. And you just start to do the math and you think, oh, okay, I can see where that works. I, I, I've compared this bull market. You mentioned mm -hmm. earlier about how hard it is to stay invested. I keep using the metaphor of trying to ride an actual bull all the way to the bell. <laughs> Sound about right? Right. <laughs> 
probably a little easier. I mean, this is something that a 67-year-old can do. I wouldn't want to try and read an actual book. <laughs> I guess that's true. It's not like death is involved um, or getting gored. Though I, every once in a while, you look at the, your screen and you feel like you're getting gored. Um, all right. We've, we, I, we had a couple of questions sent in, and I always try to kind of uh, consolidate them to get as many people uh, to, to hear and answer their question that they so graciously sent in as we could. So I've got three I want to ask you before we wrap up. Um, I think the, the first one, we had a number of people ask about this, so I thought that was good timing that we were discussing the mining shares. And this is just simply in general, but in your experience, do you think royalty companies might be a better inflation hedge than just simply owning precious metal miners? I don't think that royalty companies are a better inflation hedge for the ironic reason that they're more efficient. Uh, during periods of rapidly rising gold prices, the more marginal companies and the least efficient companies do better. Uh, I believe, however, that the margin of safety built into a royal companies, into royalty companies, pardon me, uh, operating margins in excess of 85% make them better risk reward candidates in a portfolio. In other words, if you are looking for maximum leverage, you don't want to be in the royalty and streaming companies. But if you want a prudent mix of risk to reward, you would overweight royalty companies relative to other kinds of companies. Almost a little bit of a asset allocation type thing where you mentioned earlier the traditional institution allocation of 60% equities, 40% fixed income. So you zig and zag. Maybe that's how you work royalty companies in? Well, I think you need to decide who you are as an investor or a speculator. Uh, there are some people who are willing to lose vast amounts of money. At least they rep represent themselves as being willing to lose vast amounts of money because they have a belief in the gold price. In other words, they're willing to take inordinate amount of amounts of risk. Um, investors who have traditionally been um, more rational, that is to say, have had a more balanced approach to a sector. They want the sector beta, uh, but they would like the sector beta with more safety would lean towards the royalty companies. It's important to note that in a, a precious metals bull market, the dimension of the game, which is to say the amount by which the index itself goes up, is so extraordinary that taking a whole bunch of risk to outperform the index is probably silly. Uh, capturing uh, the index move, taking less individual company risk, and, and that would include a prominent selection of royalty companies, is probably a, a more intelligent, uh, if less fun, way yeah. to play the game. All right, let's move on to the second, I guess, section of questions had to deal with, and I've seen this too, a lot of information out there about a renewed commo general commodity bull market. Uh, a lot of breakouts <clears throat> in the, maybe the long-term commit continuous commodity index or the Bloomberg commodity index. And obviously a lot of people are looking at maybe a weaker dollar in the months and years to come. Uh, I think part of that, to me, is why we're seeing some investment houses, research firms come out with bullish statements on silver. Uh, for you, what do you see in commodities in general, but then silver specifically in the months ahead? Well, silver traditionally has been, if you will, gold on steroids. Yep. Uh, and the silver, the silver stocks in particular, because of the very small number of viable ones, uh, tend to have exaggerated moves to the upside and consequently exaggerated moves to the downside. The junior silver sector beginning in June of 2020 became uninvestable because it became overpriced. 
uh, the decline that we have seen in the junior precious metals sector in the fourth, cal- uh, fourth quarter of 2020 has brought the higher quality silver stocks back into buy ranges from my point of view. So personally, in my own precious metals portfolio, I have begun to overweight silver again. Now, it's important to note that there are, I don't know, probably 60 or 65 junior silver listings worldwide, and probably 10 are worth owning. So again, stock selection is absolutely paramount, but I have begun to overweight in my own portfolio the silver equities for at least a trading position, because I think just as they were overbought, they're now oversold. Yeah. How about some of the other, uh, I guess, uh, industrial and base metals with this, everything going on with the Biden administration? Um, Do you look at, well, we can start with copper. That's moving like crazy. But how about like some of the, the battery materials, you know, lithium and cobalt and nickel, things like that? Let's deal with broad commodities, and then we'll deal with the specialized commodities. You may recall in our last interview, I suggested that over the next five years, we were in for two bull markets, a precious metals bull market first, and an industrial materials bull market later uh, in this decade. My thesis was that the economic malaise uh, that seemed to me to be likely uh, as a consequence of too much stimulus and COVID would constrain demand for industrial materials through the first couple years of this decade. Uh, But then a lack of sustaining capital would lead to supply shortages and we'd get a bull market. (laughs) To quote the American country singer, Patsy Cline, I was so wrong. Uh, (laughs) The stimulus that we have seen in the market and more particularly the um, uh, quantitative easing that we have seen in China Uh, has led to a much more rapid economic recovery than I ever would have dreamed of. Uh, And so we have a circumstance where the whole commodity complex seems to be going higher. I'm personally very concerned in the near term that this is a false breakout. Uh, I continue to believe that the financial economy is stronger than the Main Street Street economy Mm -hmm. as a consequence of excess liquidity. And I am cautious about the whole commodity complex. What people need to understand in commodities, and this is a hard lesson to learn, uh, is that uh, commodities that are necessary for the lifestyle that the world either enjoys or wants to enjoy, things like copper for electrification or oil for running automobiles, Greta Thunberg notwithstanding, (laughs) uh, will ultimately trade at or above their total production cost, which includes the cost of capital. So as an example, if you see the copper price below $3.50 U.S. per pound for an extended period of time, copper producers won't make sustaining capital investments and they won't make new project investments. And irrespective of whether demand increases or not, supplies will fall and the prices will rise. This phenomenon can take four years or five years or six years, which for a speculator can be an eternity. But the truth is that investing in uh, commodities where ongoing demand is assured, where the commodity is selling for less than the cost of production, is a very certain thing over time. It it has worked out very well for me. And and when a commodity is deeply out of favor, in addition, uh, like oil was in the middle of last year, 
uh, it becomes an absolute no-brainer investment for people who have courage and for people who have patience. Um, moving on from that to the currently hot sectors, which is to say uh, the battery metals, as they're called, they're a sort of a mixed lot. The narrative behind them is extraordinarily strong. And in a very broad sense, it's true. Uh, I think speculators would do well to look beyond electric vehicles and think more in terms of the electrification of the world. There are about 1.2 billion people worldwide that don't currently have access to electricity. They want it, and increasingly, they have the incomes and the net worth to attract it. The electrification of those people and the upgrades of the utility uh, of electricity to other people around the world, even including you and I, uh, will propel, I think, uh, everything to do with electricity higher. The battery revolution, too, and I just don't mean for electric vehicles. I mean everything from cell phones to massive battery packs that store excess production of solar power during the day, as an example, and distribute it at night. Uh, will continue to drive demand for uh, these materials, too. Uh, really across the board, what you have to be able to do, however, is separate the reality of A, the commodity market, and B, the commodity producer from the, from the narrative, which says that all things electrical or all things battery will get better. As an example, the lithium-ion battery by weight is really a copper-nickel-cobalt battery. <laughs> and, you know, don't get yourself too confused with the narrative, but rather pay attention uh, to the facts. So am I a copper bull? Yes, despite the fact that the copper price is, from my own point of view, substantially ahead of where I thought it would be. Am I a nickel bull? Absolutely. Uh, am I a cobalt bull? Absolutely, too. With cobalt, again, uh, beware the narrative. What everybody wants is safe, green, politically secure cobalt, uh, which is to say, as an example, Canadian cobalt. The problem with that is there isn't any, <laughs> or at least not very much. If you are going to buy the cobalt narrative, as an example, if you're going to buy economic cobalt, you have to buy it in South Africa or Congo or Russia. Uh, there are downsides to every narrative. The reality says that you go where the cobalt is most plentiful and cheaper. Let's move on to lithium. Uh, many people suggest that as a consequence of increased demand for lithium that there is insufficient supply. That's wrong. Uh, the world is knee-deep in lithium. What we have is a shortage of uh, refining and processing capacity. And the consequence of that is that the way that you play the lithium game, and I really, really, really like lithium in the five-year time frame, but the way that you play lithium isn't with the little tiny guys that are looking for lithium. <clears throat> it's with the great big existing lithium producers that don't have to put anything else in production. They just have to de-bottleneck their processing facilities. Mm -hmm. So the SQMs of the world, the Albemarle's of the world, uh, those are the places where the game is going to be played. People who will benefit from a doubling in the lithium price because they already have the productive facilities uh, and everything else in place. This whole lithium play in the Western US, which is to say lithium and mud, um, can work 
at a high enough price. But the certainty with which it works relative to lithium product, uh, hard rock lithium producers in, say, Australia or solar lithium producers in Chile and Argentina means that the probability of success is so much higher with the existing players that coming down the quality, ch the quality chain, unless rather than being a speculator, uh, what you are is a trader on narrative. That is, yeah. unless you're willing to completely ignore reality, uh, the place to be in that game is the best of the best. Yeah. Rick, you've been very generous with your time, and I know we all appreciate it because this is some fabulous information, but I would... I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you one last question that was sent in, and it deals with, yeah, not we need the electricity, but we also need to generate that electricity to begin with when you go to plug something in. Uh, so we've seen not so much a surge in the uranium price, but a big surge in the uranium stocks. Uh, what are your current thoughts on uranium? I'm attracted to uranium. I'm a little less attracted to it than I was three months ago before the stocks moved. Uh, I think you explain away the increase in the stocks uh, relative to the price of uranium because the price of uranium is quoted in the spot market where probably 20% of uranium sales take place. But behind the spot market, in the term market, where uh, producers and traders and utilities contract to buy and sell uranium for three-year terms or four-year terms or five-year terms, the term market for uranium is beginning to firm fairly substantially, and there are a lot of reactors worldwide that are coming off of longer-term supply uh, arrangements. They have been mm. filling themselves in the spot market, but they're beginning the process of recontracting. You heard an important statement both from Cameco and also from Kazataprom, which is to say that they won't restart their mothball production, in Canada's case at MacArthur uh, and Cigar. Chemicals case, pardon me, until they have sufficient long-term offtake agreements that they can produce those deposits profitably for their shareholders. That's important to say. What that means is that the mothballed production doesn't come back online until Cameco has signed long-term contracts, probably north of 50 U.S. dollars per pound. And Kazataprom has said the exact same thing. So we have a circumstance now where about 70, 75 million pounds of productive capacity worldwide has been taken out of the market. We have a very, very, very large gap between new production and consumption, which has been fed out of inventories. But we're coming to the point now where the users are beginning to understand that in terms of security of supply, that they're going to have to come back in the longer-term market. And importantly, if they don't come back into the longer-term market at a sufficient price uh, to generate uh, reasonable returns on capital employed by Cameco, which is to say prices probably in excess of U.S. $50 per pound, the, this production, which people regard as swing production, isn't going to come back on the market. So I think that the, the share prices of the uranium companies has correctly interpreted uh, shadow strength in the uranium business, which takes place in the term market rather than the spot market. I think this year is going to be a very good year for speculators in uranium because of really two factors. The last uranium boom, uh, the one that ended uh, with the Fukushima disaster, sparked a tremendous surge in uranium exploration worldwide. 
And it sparked a couple of discoveries uh, that are uh, truly magnificent discoveries that are selling at rather substantial discounts to what they're worth. So the first thing is that the uranium space is actually investable. Um, there are you know, probably 10 or 12 high-quality juniors out of the universe of 40 or 45. The thing that makes it uh, even better for speculators, I think, is that virtually all of those uranium juniors are going to have to return to market in the next 12 to 18 months. So for sophisticated, accredited investors who can participate in private placements, my gut feeling, my guess, I don't know for sure, but my guess is that this is going to be the best year to be in the private placement market since 2002. Hmm. Now, uh, investors in uranium have to invest as well as speculate. I'm not going to tell anybody what to buy because I don't give people investment advice. But investors in the uranium space need to familiarize themselves with only three companies. Those companies are Cameco, the Canadian giant, uh, Kazataprom, which is the largest and lowest cost uranium producer in the world. It trades on London. Uh, and finally, one that almost nobody knows about, China General Nuclear or CGN Mining, which trades on Hong Kong. Which is, which is responsible for securing uranium supplies for China, the fastest growing mm. consumer in the world. Yeah. Those are not buy recommendations. This is a circumstance where people begin to familiarize themselves with the company and ask their financial advisors for their recommendations uh, concerning those companies. But it's important in the uranium business that you invest at the same time that you speculate. Right. Rick, that's just fantastic info. And uh, for you to so generously share your time with us for this call, I just really, really appreciate it. For those of you out there listening, I know you appreciate it as well. So please don't forget to support Sprott Money because this all comes from Sprott Money. And if you want this information to continue, uh, we'd sure value your business. Uh, so please visit SprottMoney.com whenever you can, anytime you're looking to purchase some bullion or looking to store it as well. We've got great new products. We're adding more in the coming weeks. You can, of course, order directly online through the website, or if you want, just give us a call, 888-861-0775. We'll be happy to talk some precious metals with you. Rick Rule, my friend, fantastic. Uh, very much appreciate all of this information. I know I speak for everybody that's been listening that uh, I just say thank you very much and uh, hopefully we'll be able to do it again soon. Well, Craig, if I may, I'd like to make an offer uh, to our uh, the customers of our cousins oh, at Sprott please, Money. By all means. Uh, which is to say I've enjoyed talking with your listeners for a very long time. And in order to encourage that, any of your listeners who would like me personally to rank their natural resource portfolios, I'm happy to do it. Simply go to a website sprottusa.com forward slash rankings. That's sprottusa.com forward slash rankings. Enter your natural resource portfolio. By the way, natural resources only. Please no cannabis stocks. Please no yeah. supermarket stocks. I will rank those one to 10, one being best, 10 being worst. And I will comment on individual issues uh, where I think my comments might have value. In addition, uh, for those people who inquire who include charts in the question line of the web form. Uh, I'll send two stock charts, one being the Barron's Gold Mining Index, which I use because it's the longest running and most inclusive gold equity index that I'm aware of, and one that illustrates the dimension and duration of gold bull markets better than any other index I know. 
And secondly, maybe more importantly, a 100-year commodity chart, which talks about how inexpensive uh, industrial commodities are relative to other asset classes in the historical context going back 100 years. So that's SprottUSA.com forward slash rankings for rankings and the two charts that I mentioned. My goodness gracious. Why would somebody not? I'm going to send you mine. Uh, for Please do. Out loud. Uh, I just, what an <clears throat> invaluable bit of help that would be. I, I keep explaining to folks on my site, a TF Metals Report, about how you've got to have some help at this. If you think you're going to ride the bull to the end, man, just don't be out there trying to read driller results on your own and stuff. You need as much help as you can get. And if Rick Rule himself is going to volunteer to uh, assess some of your holdings, by all means, geez, take him up on it. Rick, just tell everybody one more time in case that slipped past them. What's what's the web address where you do this? SprottUSA, all one word, dot com, forward slash rankings. SprottUSA.com, forward slash rankings. All right, my friend. Hey, thank you so much for your time. This has just been great. And uh, maybe we'll do it again soon. Have a great weekend, Rick. Pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. And from all of us at Sprott Money News at SprottMoney.com. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you again next Friday.